0: Mark Abel's music writing is beholden to no school or discernible influence. Even if his music sits comfortably within an ongoing continuum in the classical tradition, Abel is his own man, a composer who brings his sensibility and highly developed command of craft to a particular idea and then illuminates it in a strikingly imaginative way. Abel's keen ability for setting songs of diverse atmosphere and feeling led Gramophone Magazine to describe this composer as compelling in his narrative depth and energy, and the whole note calls him an intriguing contemporary compositional master. Abel's versatility of works is fully apparent on his sixth recording for Delos Music, Spectrum. A generous two-disc set of song cycles, chamber pieces, and excerpts from an opera still roaming around Mark Abel's brain, written with a poetic tonal style. Mark Abel extends his palette of expression in chamber music, with new vocal works featuring three of the most outstanding voices today, two-time Grammy Award-winning soprano Hila Plitman, four-time Juno Award winner Isabel Bayrock darian and the celebrated mezzo-soprano Kendra Sharrock. Spectrum also includes an impressive array of instrumental pieces featuring pianists Carol Rosenberger, Dominic Cayley, Sean Kennard, and Jeffrey Lador, Alexander's string quartet violist David Samuel, Pacific Symphony concertmaster Dennis Kim, and the superb cellist Jonah Kim. Mark Abel is here with us to discuss Spectrum. Hi Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure to be here, Max.
0: Mark, Spectrum is both an expansion of your compositional horizons, as well as a decade-long recap of your time with the Delos label. Most recently, The Cave of Wondrous Voice. Then in 2021, you followed up with Approaching Autumn, the title track duet featured on Jonah Kim's album. The three instrumentals on Spectrum, Reconciliation Day, Out the Other Side, and The Long March, have greatly expanded your instrumental evolution.
1: Chamber music was a big struggle for me, and I've never totally understood why, because I've listened to it since I was quite young and feel that I certainly understand the parameters of the genre. My musical background was so entwined with vocal music for such a long time that I suppose I developed a kind of a complex thinking that I somehow couldn't turn this corner. And it sounds kind of silly now because I've managed to turn out seven, I think, very credible pieces in the last couple of years. And I feel that whatever artificial obstacle I was putting up for myself originally, that that's gone. And I also take a little bit of pride in that the seven pieces all are for different combinations combinations of instruments. And I hope to continue with that. It's really been a trip because I'm able to touch fields of expression that I'm kind of familiar with what they are and what they do to a listener. But for me, there's a sense of discovery about it because I haven't done it before and I'm still able to be happy about trying to meet the challenge and put everything that I have to offer into it. It's been very enjoyable.
0: Mark, as successful as your instrumental works have been, you're even better known for your vocal music, and Spectrum showcases that side of your output with poignant and forceful narratives in the three captivating song cycles that you've written, Trois Femmes du Cinema, 1966, and Two Scenes from the Book of Esther. Gila Plitman will be joining us in a bit to discuss Two Scenes from the Book of Esther. Let's start with the album open, Trois Femmes du Cinema. The piece features the powerful vocal artistry of soprano Isabel Bayrock-Darian, who is joined by the superb pianist Carol Rosenberger. The piece is rooted in your love for art films, particularly from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and the texts that you've written are centered around three important women: French actress Anne Wiazemsky, Mexican actress Pina Pellicer, and the Ukrainian Soviet film director Larisa Shepitko. Mark, how did you go about distilling in musical form what they were collectively trying to convey in their work?
1: There were a number of other actresses and film figures who who I considered for this project. In the end, I settled on Anne Wiesemski, Pina Palisar, and Larissa Shapitko. I felt that the grouping of them and the very different trajectories of their careers would work with that choice. As far as how I sort of transmuted My feelings about their work as I have experienced it and taken in in their films that they did, it's hard to answer. I knew enough about the biographies of them to have pretty decent command of them, but my own feelings about what they were putting out there in terms of their personas, I think is the most important aspect of how I wrote this piece. And fortunately, once I got going on the first one, I kind of was able to see the road leading out and how I would have to structure all three of them. I wanted to tell their stories, but not at a super long length, so I had to just distill my perceptions, and in the liner notes for this record, I admit uh, that I probably have engaged in projection in a few spots, but I don't think there's much of that at all. Hopefully, these three ladies who are all gone by now would not object to how I have tried to describe them. I felt an awful lot of emotion going into the writing of this piece and tried to hang on to it. In the case of Palliser and Chapitko in particular, since they uh, died too young, not difficult for me to feel that grief for what they could have accomplished but were denied.
0: start with Anne Wiesemski, the second wife of Jean-Luc Godard.
1: She was a very unusual person to have achieved fame at 18 in a pretty well-known film by Robert Bresson called Ohassard Balthazar, sort of a Criterion Collection go-to film. Her success, her youth told me that in her adolescence she must have really been curious about a lot of different things. To be able to step into a film role when she had never made a film before and to be able to hang with a whole bunch of people of weight in the culture, she obviously was very bright and capable of performing what she needed to do at an early age. Consequently, the very beginning lyrics of the song are She walked through a long hall of mirrors opened wide to all frontiers of the possible, opened wide to everything sacred and profane, That's how I imagine that Anne Wiesempski was. And from what I've read about her, that's probably accurate. But once you can latch on to the start of something, it's easier to roll out the rest of the story. And I've done my best with it. I think that probably, for me, the most moving lines in it are in a section after things have slowed down and she's drifting in life. There's a stanza that says, Freedom was elusive... Fame a fleeting jest The spells she cast are timeless But dreamed by unseen wizards Weaving most tangled webs O tabula rasa Her fate to be their muse Her aura the canvas on which they painted That kind of gives you, in a nutshell, what her career turned out to be. It's very interesting how Pier Paolo Pasolini, who happens to be a big favorite of mine in European art films, she's in two of his films, but he didn't really know what to do with her. She was extremely attractive physically and he chose to place her in some effective roles, but he didn't take enough advantage of what acting talent she had. She's sort of like a placeholder, and her looks kind of carry it to a certain extent, but there's a lot more they could have done. So it was nice with Anne Wiesempski to be able to report for people who didn't know it that she did have a later post-film career as a novelist and screenplay writer in France. Kind of had a resurrection of public interest that was separate from her relationship with Jean-Luc Godard. So I've just tried to tell her story as I feel it might have
2: gone. Feast,
0: Anne Wiasemski beautifully paves the way for some of the reflective moments that appear in the next song that you present in the 12M cycle, a song which focuses on Mexican actress Pina Pellicer.
1: Yeah, when you think of Pina Pellicer, not many Americans know her except people who are fans of Marlon Brando's wonderful western One-Eyed Jacks. It was her first movie. The other movies she made after that were forgettable and didn't take advantage of what a kind of extraordinary ability that she showed in One-Eyed Jacks. And then she committed suicide at age 30. So it's a short story, and the details of her life, even though she's still a major cult figure in Mexico, remain somewhat murky. To me, she'll always be the character Luisa in One-Eyed Jacks, which is a film that made a big impression on me when I was 13 years old. The people who are moved by One-Eyed Jacks are unanimous. That Pellissier's acting and just her vibe in general, very touching and just as powerful as what Brando and Carl Malden do in the film. It's not a terribly complex story in terms of reciting facts, but she had something and it was very special and it wasn't taken advantage of. She suffered from depression for quite a few years and apparently just couldn't take it anymore as she wrote in her suicide note. If she had been able to hang on for a couple more years, Alfred Hitchcock was going to put her in one of his films. A lot of things could have happened for her if she could have been pried away from the Mexican film industry. It's just really too bad. She's very special. It's a sad story about Palisar, and so it ends bleakly, but I feel appropriate.
0: Romanticism and a bit more dissonance come to the forefront in Larissa Shepitko, the third and final song in the Trois Femmes du Cinema cycle.
1: The ascent, despite winning the Golden Bear in Berlin in 1977, never got much circulation in the West or in this country.
2: A modern thing
1: After her death, Shapitko just faded off the screen unless you were a really dyed-in-the-wool adherent of Russian cinema. On an unplanned purchase one day, about 10 or 12 years ago, I noticed that the Criterion Collection had issued the Ascent in a package along with another excellent film of Shapitko's called Wings. Oh, I read on the back, I just knew that I had to buy this. (laughs) I didn't know hardly anything about Larissa Shapitko. The Ascent is just absolutely incredible film that really takes you to the darkest days of World War II, in the snow, partisans fighting the Germans, coming to an unfortunate end. I don't want to spoil the plot for anybody, but I've got to tell you, if you want to know what it was like on the Eastern Front during World War II, not necessarily the combat, but just what it was like to live under those conditions where the Germans were happy to kill anybody who they thought was the slightest threat to them. The partisans were fighting them with very poor conditions, and it's brutal, it's it's grim, but that's what happened. That's what happened on the Eastern Front, perhaps especially winter of 1942 and 43, which is also when the Battle of Stalingrad took place. I couldn't recommend this film more highly. Everybody should see it. It's not like Saving Private Ryan or any Hollywood-type films dealing with World War II. It's just taking us to a world that some of us have read about, but very few of us have been able to get close to. And here it is, The Ascent by Larisa Shapitko.
0: Mark, in addition to the song cycles on Spectrum, you've brought your compositional prowess to work on the three instrumental pieces. Reconciliation Day is the first chamber piece on Spectrum, beautifully played by violist David Samuel and pianist Dominic Cayley. The rhythmic feel on this piece interspersed with calmer sections, almost evoking an impressionistic quality.
1: I think that it's fair of me and proper for me to reveal something about the way that I handle chamber music. Like most composers, I just start writing it and you have to see where it goes and what ideas are suggesting themselves. But most chamber music is not program music of any type. It's a piece you sit down to write. You've decided what instruments are going to be involved. And if it starts out in a particular way, you have a series of choices to make along the way. and. You You keep adding on to it until you feel you've reached as far as you want to comfortably go with it. The secret I'm revealing is that I fix the titles for these chamber pieces after I finished writing them. I didn't sit down and decide I was going to try to depict the circumstances that I wrote about. It's after that I had taken the piece in and listened to it many times and knew that I was going to record it, especially with two really good players, David Samuel and Dominic Cayley.
0: He wrote in the liner notes that this piece brings to mind the ambivalence about an approaching reunion
1: There's ambivalence alternating with lyricism and some downbeat feelings. It reminded me of something that a lot of us have probably experienced in our lives, being close to somebody and then both parties drifting away over time and maybe there was even some unhappy feelings on one or both sides. But later in life, if you have the opportunity to see them again, you remember that they used to be one of your best friends, but you can't be 100% sure that things are going to go great when you get together and somehow this piece made me think of that after I'd taken it in a lot and it ends with this kind of questioning gesture I think it works musically but yes I, I did add the title later and I'll defend that <laughs> to the death I think I'd rather call it Reconciliation Day than Viola Sonata Number 1
0: the other side is played with immense integrity and authority by Trio Barkley, the ensemble in residence at the University of California, Irvine. This trio, consisting of Pacific Symphony violinist and concertmaster Dennis Kim, along with one of today's most highly regarded young cellists, Jonah Kim, and the superb pianist Sean Kennard, play together with a unique and rare chemistry. Give these powerful players a piece that packs a punch into a fairly short span, and out the other side achieves that.
1: There was no program attached to it. Trio Barclay had an engagement in the fall of 2021, and I had already recorded with Jonah Kim. He suggested that I write something for the program that they were giving, a piece in the 10-minute range. It's probably the fastest thing that I ever wrote. There wasn't very much time to write it, and it's nice when that happens and the piece turns out well. I think that the key thing about it is the journey, the piece adhering to a time constraint, and consequently there was no opportunity to be writing a long and leisurely trio. I didn't want it to be one-dimensional. I wanted it to start out mysteriously as it does and then go through a series of transformations that are basically tension and release devices that all composers use when it makes sense to use them. The piece, as it was going along, it seemed to be cohering very nicely and also giving some nice space, especially to Jonah Kim and Dennis Kim. Sean Kennard, the pianist, had to be content with a chamber music piano part. He's a fabulous player who can play stuff much more difficult, but he's also a fine chamber player. He understood what his role was. One of the most remarkable things about Out the Other Side is that I don't think I've ever written a piece that had a really upbeat, explicitly affirmative musical ending to it. And somehow this happened in this piece. I'd been going through these various transitions and tortures and doubts. And then I hit upon a series of musical gestures that sort of took off and went running uh, by themselves in the last minute of the piece. And it ends in a very nice dynamic sort of way.
0: 13-minute trio excursion titled The Long March features pianist Dominic Cayley, hornist Jeff Garza, and flutist Christy Kim, an unusual piece and somewhat of a rarity in chamber music. As the title suggests, this music journey explores the unique timbres of the horn and flute and includes stops to regroup, reflect, celebrate, and endure.
1: Well, I would put the Long March into the same category as Reconciliation Day in that it did not have a program in mind originally, and I did come up with that title after it was over. Chamber music, it is a developmental and tension and release idiom and the challenge of writing something for horn and flute was just something that I couldn't resist because the the timbres are a really nice match for each other. I really don't understand why it's so rare to encounter a trio with this instrumentation. My guess, the reason is that the horn produces a lot more volume than the flute does, but I knew we were recording it in a setup where we could make that work, and we did. to avoid falling into any rhetorical devices in my attempts to make this combination of instruments work. So, at the three minute or so mark, I decided that I was gonna write a cadenza for Dominic Cayley to play. It goes on for about a minute and a half. It was a very deliberate choice to kind of break off where the piece had gone up to that point. When I thought about it later, probably the inspiration for this device can be found in Prokofiev's Second Piano Concerto, which has about a 10-minute cadenza in the first movement. Again, and you're not expecting it, but it achieves the breaking of the expected line. But I think that my use of the cadenza here achieved kind of the same effect. It makes the listener stop and think and wonder, hey, what's going on here? I guess I better follow this for a while and see where it leads. Happily, I feel that after it comes out of the cadenza that the rest of the piece holds together very nicely and has moving moments lovely to work with these musicians on it Uh, Jeff Garza is a terrific horn player he's the principal horn of the Oregon Symphony and has played with the San Francisco Symphony many times, San Antonio Symphony, a wonderful guy Christy Kim, the flutist, is an early part of her career, she's an excellent player, had never really made a serious recording before and it was great to be able to provide that and uh, Jeff kind of being a, a very veteran player, I think he really put himself out there to make the piece come off as tightly as it does, and Dominic Cayley is one of the best young pianists around, and very happy with what he did with the piece. After sitting with this piece for quite some time, the horn figure that starts the piece and ends the piece just made me think of a long march, a slog involving people trying to keep going. And that's always been my picture of the Maoist long march that the history buffs know about. So without asking permission from the Chinese Communist Party, I used that title just because it's an episodic piece and the episodes can be thought of that way. Music needs to break break itself up one way or another, and you can try to avoid using descriptive adjectives about it, but I don't have a problem doing that. I think it guides people in in their understanding of the piece and ends the kind of resignation and somewhat melancholic
0: We're happy to have soprano Gila Plitman join us to discuss the second song cycle from the Spectrum album, Two Scenes from the Book of Esther. Hi, Gila, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Max. Gila, you're a unique artist and deeply committed to new music, well known for your collaborations with composers such as John Corleano, David Del Tredici, and Richard Daniel Poor. You're also known for your collaborations with Mark Abel as you're on six of his recordings, I believe you met Mark in 2014 when he asked you to work on his song cycle, The Palm Trees Are Restless.
2: Yes, exactly. The Palm Trees Are Restless, which is also such a unique experience with Mark's music. There's a lot of story being told through music, and you know, for us singers, that's always such a gift because it allows you to take it to a place that communicates with the audience on a level that's more expanded. And I definitely was just taken and mesmerized by that cycle and by the poetry and the way he said it. She would-
0: The Palm Trees Are Restless, five poems by Los Angeles poet Kate Gale, who of course wrote the text for two scenes from the Book of Esther. She
2: knows it! The Kate Gale cycle. introduced me to her poetry in such a unique way. I was amazed that he was able to find this poet and then choose so beautifully. And the whole cycle has a kind of journey that you go through in terms of internal value. She deals a lot with the feminine. He really found a way to kind of stack the poems in a way that I found leaves you completely raw by the end of it in terms of what is a woman in this world and the path that we all still have to travel in order to allow these qualities to be seen as something valuable.
1: There just aren't many people of Hila's level of prominence and respect, very few, I think, who are willing to put themselves out there artistically for a composer at that point who was very little known. I'll always be tremendously grateful to Hila. She's inspired me. I want to offer her something that she's going to like, but challenges her in a certain way because I think that it brings out the best in her and it brings out the best in me. I know if I'm writing something that I'm hoping will be accepted by her, believe me, I'm putting everything (laughs) I can into it. It's been just a wonderful experience.
2: Wow, I mean just listening to you introduce me so kindly, I'd say I'm a very lucky woman. I've had a real privilege of working with composers who have a deep relationship and honesty to text and also a capacity and an ability to write so keenly and so beautifully to that text. And Mark Abel is one of those people. Anytime he (laughs) pipes up and calls me and says, I've got something, I say, yes, please
0: mark two scenes from the book of esther is a slice of an opera you've had in development for a while
1: yeah the maiden esther which is my title for this scene just because i didn't know whether this project was going to go any further than these two scenes I wanted to make sure that everyone understood that this was quite a young woman, uh, maybe still in her late teens, who is kind of on the verge of a very fateful encounter with a guy who is going to wind up changing her life, and vice versa. She's kind of naive in various ways. She doesn't know how treacherous things are in the Persian court. She doesn't know who Haman is yet. She's just a kind of a wide-eyed, cheerful young woman, but who also has decided that things are going to be okay regardless of what happens. There's a line in there. I'm taking my own hands and feet, but if I can't win him myself, then I'm not worth winning. Then she follows that with, I bring joy everywhere I go. If that's not enough for the king, then palaces are not for me. So even if she's just from a village family, she's centered enough to not be knocked for a loop by the king. She's going to be okay regardless of what happens.
0: Hela, you're featured in this first scene as the lone soloist.
2: Comfort, Icai, made our home in white wall.
0: The text details Esther, a biblical heroine whose strength and cunning prevented the extermination of a 5th century Jewish community. This story has some special significance for you.
2: Well, I definitely grew up with that story. Yes, absolutely. I found, again, this was more in the collaboration, I think, between Mark and Kate, who's the one writing the libretto for this opera, the ideas of what it feels like to be a woman who kind of is in a position where to a degree she has to just give herself away in order to rectify these political forces and Kate really hit on that quality that juxtaposition that does have this kind of folky quality in it and it's also so singable it always amazes me Mark's music is never easy to learn (laughs) And yet it's a difficulty that's more in the meat of it, but the music itself flows once you know it, once you've practiced it and know it. And it's so singable. And I was enjoying the kind of quality of being able to sing a queenly song. I also really loved the idea of two queens and what their relationship is and what they have to learn from one another and teach one another.
0: Hila, given the simmering emotions that come into intimate focus for both characters in Two Queens, can you talk about working with Kindra in these performances?
2: Well what's interesting is we actually recorded separately with everyone's busy schedule. It was pretty miraculous. Mark had sent us a kind of blueprint with audio and notes, and then Kindra recorded first. And what was lovely about it is her voice is so beautiful and so expressive her understanding of the character to me vocally was so full that even though she wasn't there in the room with me it allowed me a relationship a back and forth so that when i went and i think she got the harder part of the deal because she didn't have the recording to play against but i was given her pre-recorded version as we were recording my lines And everybody, all the musicians in the room were just extraordinary. Also, voices in the conversation. In this piece, particularly because it's a bigger ensemble for me, doing a piece of Marx, I was amazed at how much of a conversation there was happening between every single instrument in the room. Kindra not only has a quality in her voice, it has a seriousness to it. The music carries this kind of almost Middle Eastern, complex, darker quality in terms of what she has to say and what she's feeling. I was once called Vashti. I came before you as the king's most favoured. You do not know. It gave me a lot as a woman who is still in innocence, trying to figure out how to parse all this and make her way to get this kind of dark wisdom from somebody. is a very interesting thing.
0: Gila, <laughs> can you talk a bit about some of the gorgeous vocal lines as Esther dreams a bit in the first song?
2: Yeah, Gorgeous Lines is exactly right. A line that I think repeats itself that has to do with I know nothing of kings. And it's this quality that shows her to be really fearless because this is a big deal. <laughs> She's intelligent. She knows that she knows nothing. And yet she goes ahead and puts herself fully into the experience. It's more about imagining what will happen. I know nothing Oh okay. king. What's the one? Here we go. Speak when spoken to, act when acted upon. Be an open vessel, born by the wind. When the king says, will you, say yes very simple text and this is one of those lines but it keeps kind of flying and playing around the clouds is the way that i would describe it each little sentence kind of does an uplift for the next one for me as a singer it gives me the energy for the next one and the next one and the next one speak when spoken to
0: Hila, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Mark, 1966 is the final piece and the third song cycle on the album. It features mezzo-soprano Kendra Sharik and her close colleague, pianist Jeffrey Lador. This wistful, nostalgic, lyrical piece reflects on the time when you turned 18 years of age and were affected by three life-changing events, a romance, a hike, and the San Francisco visit.
1: This was a life-changing year for me in a lot of ways. And when I think of my past, this particular year, I remember it fondly and also the unsettling quality of just being completely without supervision and not knowing where, what was going to happen next. I was in a prep school, an all-boys prep school, which happened to be 1961 through 1966 what happened during those years. Uh, There was John Kennedy assuming the presidency, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the rise of the civil rights movement, eventually uh, breaking out into riots, the assassination of Kennedy, the war in Vietnam uh, growing apace with each year. Culturally, it was the golden age of modern jazz, as far as I'm concerned. I got to be quite a jazz fan when I was young. As a 15, 16-year-old went down to hear Coltrane and Monk at this little club in DC called the Bohemian Caverns. It was also the rise of the folk music movement. The Beatles came along rock took over from folk, golden age of black pop music, R&B and Motown, and all this stuff was (laughs) was happening during these five years that I was stuck in this prep school and couldn't get out. And the last two of those years I was a boarding student, so I was there all the time and not having much opportunity to interact with young women. It wasn't a military school, but it was kind of run that way. So it was a kind of a repressed time of not being able to directly participate in all this turmoil that was going on other than to appreciate the cultural life as best I could. So when I graduated from this place in 1966, it was a tremendously freeing experience. And it was even more freeing because my parents had moved to England during that time. And I was kind of on my own for the first time and really relishing being on my own. I was slated to go to Stanford University, which was not my first choice, but I was kind of pressured into going there. Against my parents' wishes, I decided to drive across the country to get there from DC where we lived. So the three songs that are written about in this cycle, I think I'm going to talk about them in chronological order rather than the order that they are on the record. The first song I want to talk about is called First Love. It references my time when I was still being a boarding student at the prep school. I was blessed enough to fall in love with a wonderful young woman. It was a very freeing experience to just have that after, you know, the years of frustration that people have to suffer through when they're younger than that in adolescence. Living in this dorm-like structure in the dead of winter, a reference icicles hanging from the wire. There were icicles hanging from the wire. In the poem, I turn it into a kind of a catharsis. It symbolizes kind of my first break of freedom. When it's over, you feel like taking a deep breath. The second song, chronologically, even though it's the third song in the cycle, is called Somewhere in Wyoming, and this references the drive that I took in a little Volkswagen bug across the country by myself, staying in little motels and not really knowing much of anything about the states that I was driving across. kind of feeling existentially at loose ends. I was driving along this two-lane highway in Wyoming and I saw this mountain range rising to the right of the road.
2: The sun is high, wind light There
1: was just something very attractive about it. I wanted to go look at it more closely. Very desolate, desiccated area without any fences. And so I was able just to pull my car over to the side of the road and start walking in the direction of these mountains. But it was a symbolic act that I was taking just to bolster my feeling that I could do anything now and nobody would stop me. In the writing of this poem, I was lucky enough to stumble across this imagery about the mountains being far away and that I'm only in the foothills. And that happens to be true in geographic terms, but I realized later that it's great imagery for being in life's foothills. At 18, you're pretty far away from the peaks. Fall Sunday in San Francisco, derives from a poem that I actually wrote in November of 1966. There's been quite a few changes in it since then, but it really is a depiction of me walking around a section of San Francisco adjacent to Golden Gate Park, never having been in this particular neighborhood before, and just kind of marveling and spacing out and taking in the characteristics of the landscape and the urban scape. And it's just a poetic reminiscence put me in touch with certain aspects of San Francisco. I would say the weather more than anything else, but uh, hey, you you can make a poem out of the weather, so.
0: Mark Abel, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast to discuss your wonderful recording spectrum.
1: Thank you, Max. Pleasure talking to you.